Our scripture this evening comes once again from uh, 1 John, and this evening we will look at verses uh, 6 uh, through uh, 12. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. <clears throat> Here's God's word for us this evening. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in his testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you that you have given us life and that you have given it us in your Son. We thank you, O Lord Jesus, that you have come and that you have had recorded about you all that you did that was good for us and beneficial. And we pray now, O Lord God in heaven, as we seek to understand better, as you explain to us what it is that you have done, O Lord Jesus, that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive the testimony that you give to us, O divine sovereign spirit. We make this request to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that all of you have heard, and I imagine that many of you have voiced the statement, there is a reason for the season. And if you did say that, uh, you were no doubt trying to, to communicate to, to that there is a reason why there's a holiday that we call Christmas. And uh, you may have tried to help people to understand that we don't have Christmas just because we want to have Christmas trees. Uh, that the real thing that initiated this holiday Christmas was uh, the incarnation of Christ. And we say these kinds of things because we want people to know that the, uh, the reason uh, uh, that uh, we have Christmas is not some kind of abstract notion of love, uh, nor is it some kind of cultural sign that there is great satisfaction in giving uh, rather than receiving. Uh, in fact, you may want to use these, this language to combat the crass commercialism and the growing and pervasive secularism that seems to be so much a part of Christmas. In fact, you actually may have used these words when someone objected to some kind of a manger scene someplace and you told them there's a reason for the season. So we've used this. But while you've you voiced these words, you may still find that when you think about Christmas, that by and large, Christmas is driven by sentiment. And not only is it driven by sentiment, but it's often driven by, by nostalgia that informs that sentiment. You know, it may be nostalgic things from your childhood. You remember fondly, you know, grandma always giving you this or that, or the excitement of getting up on Christmas morning and looking at what's underneath the tree. 
uh, or it may just be nostalgia about things that you've seen in pictures and heard about. You know, uh, you may think Christmas is the time when sleigh bells do ring and people at one time drove through the city of Philadelphia, uh, you know, in a sleigh and there were Christmas trees all around and people were wondering about singing carols. Uh, we get filled with all that kind of sentiment and sometimes, as I said, it's our sentiment and sometimes it's just a general uh, nostalgia for things that we think have gone on in the past. Yeah, but the Apostle John not only presents the reason uh, for the season, uh, but also gives us reasons why should we should believe in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And his reasons are, are, are rooted in concrete, objective things that were observed and that we can come to understand and even articulate what these are. Now, John starts off by following up on a, on a proposition that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came. Uh, that's the point he's trying to make. He tries to show these little children to whom he is writing uh, that God sent his Son into the world. And he uses, as we talked about the last time, two different ways of describing uh, the Lord Jesus. One is he calls him the Christ. Now the other is that he calls him the son of God. You look back in verses one and five of this chapter and you will see that. Now as he does this, his, his proposition that Jesus has come has two focal points. Uh, one of his focal points is, is to refute the views of those who deny that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he came to earth to save his people. There are those who left John and the rest of the congregation because they did not, they did not believe that. They did not believe that Jesus was God incarnate. But the other focal point for John is that he wants his little children to benefit from the belief in the truth about Jesus that John himself presents to them. He wants them to experience the power of their faith. Remember we talked the last time about how this faith, this trust in this Jesus, the Christ who came, the Son of God, how it gives people the very power to overcome the world because that power resides in this Jesus who has come. So their, their faith is that which overcomes the world. But he also wants them to benefit and benefit uh, uh, from the fact that if those people have Christ, if they understand Christ, if they embrace uh, the Christ who has come, John also wants them to know that they have eternal life. Uh, so, so he has these two views, uh, these two ideas in mind as he makes this proposition uh, that Jesus has come. Now, he first of all calls him the Christ, and uh, we, we talked about this uh, the last time, and he says, uh, this is he who came. And you see this in, in verse 6 of the, of the text, uh, when he's referring back to what he has talked about previous when he talks about uh, this is he who came, that is, the Christ, uh, the Son of God. Uh, and as we looked at this the last time, we, you might remember that Jesus, uh, John is pointing out uh, that... Uh, 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 that, that those who are born of God believe that Jesus is the Christ. This uh, means that uh, followers of Jesus believe that he is the Messiah, the promised one who is described in the Old Testament. And we tried to go over that a bit, uh, quite extensively the last time. 
Uh, he's the one, for example, who is anticipated in Genesis chapter 3 as to come, but he's also the one who's described in, uh, in Isaiah 53 in rather graphic ways uh, in advance of this. And uh, faithful Jews longed for this coming, for this Christ, uh, for this anointed one. Uh, John himself is one that records that when uh, Andrew became a follower of the, of the Lord Jesus, uh, that he went and he recruited his brother, Simon Peter. And John records in, in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 41, the way in which uh, uh, Andrew introduced Jesus to, to, to his brother, uh, 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 Simon. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And so John himself has uh, remembered that. He's, he's uh, kept that for us and recorded uh, that for us. But he's not only the Christ, uh, he's also the Son of God. We see that also uh, in the text, particularly in verse 5. And again, we looked at this the last time. It's those who overcome, they have faith that, and that Christ is the Son of God. That is, the second person of the Trinity has become man. And at this time of year, we, we remember the incarnation. But do we think very much about what incarnation means? And I often fear, probably it's a fear born out of my own uh, uh, brain and heart, that, that talking about the incarnation is easy. Uh, and because it's easy, it doesn't have much effect on us. But think for a minute. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, became man, he was born a babe in Bethlehem, and grew up to die upon the cross. Now, I can say that to you, and you can say yes to that, but I dare say that saying yes to that, even acknowledging that it's true, doesn't get hold of the marvel of what it means that the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh. Uh, that's a mystery, certainly, how that could happen. We, we just can't understand how God becomes like we are. But not only is it a mystery, it's also a marvel. It ought to be something that uh, uh, just, just you know, sort of makes your head feel like it's not big enough to get everything inside of it. Uh, it's, it's, yes, it's mind-boggling. And, and that's what John is, is, I think, trying to get across to these beloved children of, of his. Now, I think well, there are certain things we need to keep in mind about this. This Jesus that he talks about who was sent in verse 6 uh, this Jesus who came is the Jesus who was sent. Uh, and uh, John calls upon his followers to believe that uh, Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And it's good for us to recall that Jesus is sent by his Father. The second person of the Trinity is commissioned, if you will, to come to earth, uh, to live here, uh, then to die upon the cross. That, that, uh, that's what he did. So it's good for us to recall that Jesus was sent. And, and one point we dare not miss is the reason why the Father sent the Son. Uh, you probably know the verse that tells you the very reason why he did that. It's recorded for us in John's Gospel in verse uh, 16 of chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So, so that, that, that the Father, because he loved you, he sent his Son into this earth to die for you. And, and that is one of the reasons why we have this season. 
That's one of the reasons for this, and we dare not let that slip from this. And John reiterates this point in chapter 4 of, of this very book that he writes to us in, in, in the 10th verse when he says, God the Father, of God the Father, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. There's a sense in which God the Father's love impelled him uh, to send his son for our salvation. So, so when, when we talk about God, talk about Jesus coming, the second person of the Trinity, we have to remember he's commissioned, he's sent by his Father. But likewise, we must not forget that Jesus came freely to carry out the will of his Father. He's commissioned to go, uh, to be born, uh, the creator to become a creature, uh, the creator, uh, to, to the giver of life, to die. He's, he's sent to do that, and then he freely comes and does that. I mean, we have to get hold of that. Uh, I think the Apostle Paul helps us a bit in those very well-known uh, words from the, the second chapter of Philippians. Let me just read verses 5 through 8 to you. Uh, though he's speaking of Jesus, he says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when, when John tells us this Jesus, this Jesus, the Christ, uh, the Son of God, came, all of this is packed into that. He is sent by his Father, he freely comes, and he comes uh, uh, for this purpose of dying for his people. So, that, so that's the proposition that John is setting before uh, his little children and setting before us as well. Now John does this, uh, then he gives some testimony, not only offers the proposition that Jesus came, but he also sets forth some uh, proofs or testimonies, if you will, that show uh, that the, the, why Jesus came. I um, mean, he offers three proofs, he tells us here. Uh, three proofs, uh, the proof of the water, the proof of the blood, and the proof of the Holy Spirit. Now when John talks about uh, 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 Jesus coming by water as a testimony, I take him to be referring to Jesus' baptism. Uh, commentators have lots of different uh, suggestions uh, that come for uh, what that water might mean. Uh, but it does seem to me that Jesus' baptism best fits uh, uh, both the context of, uh, of uh, John's uh, epistle, but also the uh, Gospels as well. And, and you will recall certain things about Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism was a baptism that was offered by John the Baptist. Not the John that wrote this one, but John the Baptist. I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. Let me just read to you what Mark 1.4 tells us about John's baptism. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> Doesn't that bother you just a little bit? Jesus was baptized with a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now your mind ought to jump right out and say, that can't be. That just can't be because Jesus was sinless. How could he be baptized for a baptism for the forgiveness of sins? You know, your first reaction ought to be, that doesn't make any sense at all. And it doesn't make any sense unless we understand what was going on with regard to Jesus' baptism. And we don't have time this evening to go through all of those things, but let me just try to summarize under, under two, two, two words. That Jesus' baptism is, first of all, an initiation. Uh, 
And second of all, an inauguration. Uh, it's a form of initiation. Uh, the baptism of John was for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus had no sins. Nevertheless, he is baptized, but he's baptized in the place of his people. And, and in some ways, Jesus' baptism parallels our baptism because it's a sign and seal of our engrafting into Christ. That is our union with Christ. And in a similar way, when Jesus is baptized, he's initiated into what we need. He comes now to be connected to us in a, in a kind of official, straightforward way. He comes to begin this work of taking the place of what? of sinners who need this. So this is Jesus' baptism. He's, he's initiated in this way. It's a kind of a parallel to what we have here. So we see him initiated, but we also see him inaugurated. Uh, you'll remember that Messiah, uh, the, the word uh, that's translated in the Greek Christ, Messiah means anointed one. And there's a sense in which we can talk about Jesus' baptism as an inauguration, that he is the one who is anointed, that's uh, kings were anointed, that's how they knew they began their reign. You see, they, that was what was going on, that's what happened. And so Jesus is anointed, this is an inauguration. This is the beginning of his work of what? Of substitution for people like us. So he's initiated, that is, he takes on a baptism that belongs to us. It's a way in which we and he are united together and it is inauguration uh, into his work, his work uh, that, he has, uh, that God has promised will deliver his people. Uh, both John's followers and his opponents agree that the baptism shows these things about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse six. Not by the water only, but the water and the blood. So his opponents believed that the water showed, the baptism, the water of baptism showed that Jesus was, as I tried to explain, both initiated and inaugurated into his role as the, as, uh, uh, the savior. Uh, but he also says that, they, 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 uh, uh, that the blood also testifies to it. And, and this is where the, the opponents of John, we talked about Serenthus, that's his opponent, uh, that he did not believe that Jesus, uh, the Son of God, died upon the cross. He thinks that the, that the divine left uh, uh, Jesus at, before that happened. That was Serenthus. Uh, but John tells us that the blood testifies. I think he's referring very clearly to Jesus' death on the cross. And the blood testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the one who is described, for example, as I mentioned, in the 53rd chapter of, of Isaiah, the suffering servant of the Lord. Uh, Jesus' blood testifies uh, to the efficacy of what Jesus came to do and what he accomplished. Uh, you may recall back in chapter 1, verse 7, we've referred to this a couple of times after, through this series. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. So he's talking about this blood, about Jesus dying upon the cross with the object of getting rid of people's sins, of taking away the sins. This is what the Messiah did. This is, this is the work of the Messiah. This is the work of the Son of God who came to earth. The incarnate second person of the Trinity is born in order that he may uh, take away our sins by shedding his own blood. And so there's a sense in which uh, the blood accomplishes all that's built into the baptism. He's, he's, he's initiated into being united to us. He's inaugurated into his role as the Savior. And when he dies upon the cross and rises again from the dead, uh, therefore he fulfills those, those things that were there. 
Now John goes on. He not only talks about the, about the testimony that comes from the, from the water and the testimony that comes from the blood about who Jesus the Messiah is, who Jesus the Son of God is, but he also talks about the testimony that comes from the Holy Spirit. And the testimony from the Holy Spirit, John tells us, is both different and it's superior uh, to the witness of the water and the blood. And uh, I think it may be useful for us to note that this word that in the ESV is translated a testimony is often a word that's translated witness. And that word witness can be slightly technical uh, because it, it refers to people who testify, first of all, in court. And what they have to say is accurate. It's trustworthy. And so, so all of these, uh, the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit, but particular the Holy Spirit, offers that which is, is, uh, is uh, worthy of belief. It's a statement about someone or something. Uh, now, now, John captures this uh, worthiness, this trustworthiness, when he tells us that the Spirit is the truth. And he makes that, that statement. Now, at first, we, we uh, uh, may, may wonder what he's saying there, but this is not an odd thing for John to say. This is a, a, a regular part of the way in which uh, John communicates that the Holy Spirit is truth is something that's common to this, uh, this writer. In his gospel, uh, he has repeatedly identified the Holy Spirit as the one who brings the truth about Jesus. And uh, we see this when Jesus, he records, that Jesus himself encourages his disciples by telling them that the other comforter will come, the Holy Spirit will come to them. And in that upper room discourse, Jesus identifies the Holy Spirit as the truth at least three times. In John 14, 14, in 15, 26, and 16, 13. And the role of the Spirit is to truthfully bear witness to Jesus. And, and the Holy Spirit does this by using this external testimony of those objective things, of the baptism and also of the shedding of blood of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. But in addition to these external ways of, of working in us, and we'll come back and look at this in a minute, he also provides internal testimony. That's what he's talking about in 5.10, where John tells us God, I think he's referring there to the Holy Spirit, testifies or bears witness in the children of God. Um, the idea is that the, the Holy Spirit comes and works in us, and as he works in us, we see these things that point to what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he did, and he convinces us that these are true things. He convinces us that they're true, so that when we think about them, when we analyze them, when we, when we pay attention to them in, in a kind of a critical, thoughtful kind of way, the Spirit works in us and says, these objective things are true. That's the way in which he, he works always with the Scripture, for example. You read the Bible and you understand the Bible. Why? Because the Spirit of God works in you. That's what Paul means when he says these things are spiritually discerned by the power of the Spirit. So he does come to us with taking this objective material and helps us. He convinces us. But he not only convinces us in our minds, he works in us in such a way so that, that we have these convictions, but these convictions take us to the role he has as a comforter. When you know something is true and you're absolutely convinced that something is true, you find that comforting. You find that reassuring. Uh, you know, if somebody, uh, you have some problem with your automobile and you trust that you have a good mechanic and you take your car to that mechanic and that mechanic says, I fixed it, you get in your car 
And you not only believe the mechanic, but you get in your car and you drive along comfortably, trusting that this mechanic has always fixed your car. Well, there's a sense in which the Spirit comes and he convinces us, but he also gives us comfort, gives us assurance, gives us confidence in these kind of things. And that's what John is talking about here as he talks about this uh, uh, internal testimony that the Spirit gives. But he goes along with that. In verse 9, he says that he tries to help us to understand this a little bit more fully because he says that if we receive the testimony of humans, we should surely believe then a testimony that comes from God. And John uses this kind of argument other times. He takes something that's lesser, if you will, and says if the lesser is true, then is the greater not also true. That is, if you believe what I'm saying, I'm a human. You believe what I'm saying. Well, then if you believe what I'm saying, you surely ought to believe what God is saying because God is truth and he cannot lie, he cannot deny himself. That's the kind of argument that John is making here. And so that's the way in which the Holy Spirit works in us. That's the testimony that he, he gives to us. And uh, John's point in verse 9 is that we can sh be sure that what we have been taught from the beginning of our Christian experience, that which we have seen in the scriptures, is something that is true and worthy of our belief. Now John goes on and he wants us, uh, uh, he, he wants us, he wants his congregants, he wants these little children uh, to continue to follow Jesus faithfully. That's why he's telling them, that's that second focal point we talked about. And to that end, throughout the, the book, he has addressed these defective teachings so that he can make sure that, that, that his uh, little children, his beloved ones, don't go off in a wrong way. That's what he's trying to do here. And in this section of the letter, he continues to do this and he emphasizes the validity of his, uh, his position by pointing out uh, the testimony that he's put together. He says there are these three testimonies, three reasons uh, why you can believe uh, that Jesus came and why he came and what he did. His evidence is trustworthy because it comes from the Father. Uh, the Father testifies to the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what he's telling us here. Uh, and, and, and we see this. Uh, uh, we see this, for example, in the baptism of, 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 uh, John, of Jesus. Uh, what do we see in Luke, the third chapter? Uh, Jesus is baptized, and we read in Luke 3.22, uh, the Father declares, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Uh, so so the, the Father testifies to these things, that he is his Son. Now the Son acknowledges that he is the Son sent by the Father to die on the cross. And, uh, and we remember this each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Larry stood up here this morning and told us uh, very clearly, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, so, so we have Jesus, the Father saying that, that this is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We have the Son saying to us uh, that, uh, that, that, that the cup, that his blood, his shed blood, uh, is poured out for uh, uh, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that's, what, that's what he's telling us here. And, and the Holy Spirit uses the water of Jesus' baptism and, and the blood of the cross to testify to this truth. He not only uses, as I said, the objective kind of things, but also works in our hearts and our minds. So that when we look at these uh, 
these testimonies, they're not just abstract, objective, kind of theoretical, theological kinds of things, but they're ways in which God works, and that final way of working is he gets inside you, he convinces you, and he gives you confidence and comfort in that which he has told you. Uh, now, as we look at this text, a lot of commentators uh, 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 try to argue that, that the water and the blood really refer to the sacraments of baptism and, the, and uh, the Lord's Supper. I can't be convinced that that's what John is referring to, particularly because it's uh, odd to talk about water and then the blood rather than body or something of that sort with referring to the, to the, to the uh, supper. But on the other hand, I can't imagine Maybe because when I look at these texts, one of the first things that pops into my mind are baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we think about water and blood, it just, it's there. And so I do think there is a sense in which as the Spirit works in us, there's a, there's a kind of secondary meaning, uh, a kind of encouragement that we can go ahead with and think about these things. And so I don't think this is the primary reference, but it does seem to me it helps us to understand these better as we think about them through uh, the vehicles of the sacraments themselves. And when we see a baptism like we saw just a few weeks ago uh, here, uh, what are we supposed to do when we watch a baptism? And particularly when we watch a baptism of an adult. You know what to do when you see a baptism of a child. You sit there and think, oh, isn't he cute? Is he going to cry? You know, uh, we know what to do there. But when we have a baptism of an adult, what are we supposed to think about? What's supposed to go on in our heads and our minds as, as we're doing this? Well, let me remind you again of what I told you before, and that is that baptism is a sign and seal of our engrafting into Christ. And when you witness that baptism, one of the things you ought to have been thinking about is that as, as, as Japhon uh, acknowledged him belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you ought to be sitting in your uh, uh, seat there saying, hey, he's united to Christ, and so am I. And, and Jesus will never leave me, he will never abandon me, you see. And I do think that when John's audience would have seen this, or, or even those later on would have, would have had that thought about baptism coming to them. And this morning we celebrated the Lord's Supper, and I hope you remember that Jesus' body was given, and that you, as the, as the confession of faith says, you spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. So John tells us the proposition that Jesus has come. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He gives us this, these three proofs, if you will, these three witnesses, testimonies, uh, to why Jesus has come. But he also tells us what happens because we come to the right verdict to that. Now, those who believe the testimony of the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit, John tells us, they have eternal life. And this notion of eternal life is also a very common and important concept, both in this epistle and in the whole of John's gospel. Uh, for example, in verse uh, 2 of the first chapter of this, John identifies Jesus with eternal life. Uh, what he means is that Jesus, who is the Son of God, because God has eternal life, Jesus is God, he has eternal life, and because he has eternal life, he is the one who is able to give to us eternal life, and that's one of the things the water testifies to. You're united to Jesus, so you have access uh, to that eternal life uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the key to having this eternal life is to believe in Jesus. And uh, that's what John tells us here in 5.1. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And now John describes eternal life, uh, not only in this text, but also in other places. One that's perhaps familiar with you, uh, familiar to you, is uh, when uh, uh, Jesus is talking to Martha at the death of, uh, before the resur- uh, raising again of, uh, of Lazarus. In John 11, verses 25, we read, 25 26, we hear, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? And I think we have to hear that last part. Do you believe this? Is this something that you're grasping and that you're getting a hold of? Uh, And those who don't believe this, John is also very clear. He tells us, for example, that those who don't believe perish. We see that in John 3.16. They undergo God's wrath. We see that in John 3.36. They come under God's judgment. We see that in John 5.24. So so, so John puts this this before us, that that if we believe this testimony, if we believe that Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God, has come, and then we have eternal life. There's a sense in which believing the proposition uh, along with the testimony uh, equals eternal life. Now, now during this Christmas season, uh, let's ask ourselves, uh, do you believe the proposition that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And ask yourself whether that is an informed or whether that is one of those uh, naive convictions I have lots of naive convictions. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm almost a complete musical ignoramus. Uh, I, I just don't understand music, but I like to listen to it. And I think I like box music. Uh, I like to listen to it. Uh, I think sometimes I can identify it. But if somebody asks me, what is there about box music that you like? All that I can say is, I like box music. That, my brothers and sisters, is a naive conviction. And my fear is, at this time of year, when we're thinking and talking about the incarnation, that our belief about the incarnation is like my belief that box music is good. Yeah, I believe it, but I don't know anything about it. It's, it's an ignorant one. And it does strike me that John is addressing that kind of issue very much so. He's telling us about this witness, this testimony, this which makes what he tells us is trustworthy. And so it's important for us to have this in our minds, that uh, when you say that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, do you have any information that makes that judgment a true judgment. And we'll keep with music a little bit. Uh, Some of you at this time of year love to listen to Handel's Messiah. And if you're like I am, you find yourself walking around at Christmas time and Messiahs, uh, parts of the Messiah, are not only bopping around in your head, they come popping out of your lips once in a while. But think about the marvel of the Messiah. And all those Bible references, all those ones that you just love to come out of your mouth, you know. But think about them. This is all that Old Testament saying to you, the Messiah, the promised one, has really come. And he came and he was baptized. He was baptized to take his place 
along with you, to unite himself with you and to unite him together, uh, you along with him. And then he went to the cross. His blood was shed. You see, that promise is there in all of the Old Testament. And, and when you think about that, when you allow the Messiah to get inside you, and it says to you, Jesus really was born. Jesus, the promised one from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, Jesus, the promised one that was anticipated from Genesis chapter 3, did come. And not only did he come, but he also died. And why he died, why he came, allow those things to get into you a bit as you come into this uh, Christmas season. Um, uh, when you believe that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, he came to earth, let your mind and your heart be amazed at the mystery of that. I've mentioned this before. Oftentimes at Christmas time, the mystery all has to do with sentiment. But Christmas is a time of overwhelming mystery. I wish that I could have the, the, the ability to stand before you and explain exactly what it means that God became flesh and why that happened and how that happened. I can give you little hints of that, but I can't put together anything other than to say it's amazing, it's mysterious. And as I say it's amazing and it's mysterious, I also say it's very real and because it's amazing and mysterious and real, it's a marvel. It's overwhelming. And if we can go through this season celebrating the incarnation, and we don't at some time just stand there and say, wow, this is overwhelming. John says, this Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, came to earth. He came because the Father loved you, and he came to die to take away your sins. You see, I think we have to get hold of this so as we reflect on these things, and as you reflect on these things, and you look at the, the, the marvel at all, and you're puzzled, surely puzzled by some of this, remember that there are three that testify, the water and the blood and the Holy Spirit. And he comes and he works right inside you. If when you raise that question, the Spirit can come and he can direct you into his words so that you can understand and you can marvel all the more at the wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God. So, so I, I encourage you to think through these things. But I also think I have to warn you because John puts a warning in this text. So let me warn you that during this season, it's easy to be swept up in all that goes on and not address the reasons for the seasons. You can imagine during Christmas that you have eternal life. But I have to warn you, if you don't believe the promises that Jesus promised the God incarnate who came to take away your sins, if you don't believe and trust that Jesus, you do not have eternal life. And I have to give you that warning because John makes that warning so very clear. And I repeat to you the very things I said a few minutes ago about those who do not have eternal life. Those who don't believe perish. Those who don't believe undergo God's wrath. Those who don't believe come under God's judgment. So I invite you. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with enjoying the festivities of the atmosphere around Christmas. There's not even anything wrong with having a part of your Christmas being filled with all kinds of sentimental things. 
There's nothing wrong with all that sentiment, you know, going back to the nostalgia, which may or may not really have happened, but just having it make you feel all nice and warm. But I plead with you, not only say the words, there's a reason for the season, but remember the words. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God came. And he was baptized so that I and he could be united together. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah who came, went to the cross and died so that I might have my sins taken away. Don't let that slip away from you. Don't let that slip away from you at all. The reasons for the season can bring great joy to us. But if you're like I am, there's also a kind of sadness. It sort of slips in the celebration of Christmas because I know people, friends and relatives who do not believe that the Messiah came, who do not believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And so always Christmas reminds me of a deep sadness that these people haven't got hold of the testimony that the Spirit of God brings through the water and through the blood. And you probably have friends and relatives just as I do. Give them a Christmas present. Tell them why you believe. Give them reasons why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus the Messiah came. The Son of God took on flesh. He united himself with his people. He died upon the cross, believing that you and they can have eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it directs us, for the way in which it convicts us. And we pray now, our Father, that you will cause your spirit to work in us and help us to honestly and earnestly affirm the wonder of the Incarnation and to live with the anticipation and hope that one day we will be with you and we will be with you forever. We make this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.